Hello, folks, and welcome back to Platform Enterprise, a podcast for people who are pissed off with capitalism. I'm your host, Rachel Donald. I'm an investigative journalist and a writer. You can find some of my work over at platformenterprise.com, where, most importantly, you can sign up to get these podcast episodes delivered straight to your inbox every single week. On this week's show is... On this week's episode is Dr. Carrie King. Carrie is a research scientist at the University of Texas and assistant director at the Energy Institute. He performs interdisciplinary research related to how energy systems interact within the economy and environment and how these can impact policy. He joined me to talk about, uh, mostly about his book, actually, The Economic Superorganism, and how we can think about restructuring the economy or reimagining it as a system of moving parts in their relationship rather than just um, solid variables like GDP or energy in equals energy out or whatever it is. He has some really fascinating ideas for how we can start to think about energy. And actually, uh, pretty quickly into the episode, we get into the myth of efficiency, which is that no matter how efficient certain processes become, consumption does not decrease. He gets into this in terms of the economy and, of course, climate change. Um, and essentially the fact that most people are still operating under the assumption that they can have their cake and eat it too. Uh, in an economist's terms, he says, that would be uh, that the economy can still grow and we can decarbonize the earth. Yeah, no, that's, that's not going to happen, he says. Um, this is a really, really interesting episode. It's definitely the first episode in which thermodynamics have been brought up as a topic of conversation. And I do my very best to keep up with him. I'm sorry if there's anyone listening who's an expert in thermodynamics. Uh, I will have no doubt slowed Kerry down to a snail's pace for you. But for the rest of us who are not experts, I hope this episode helps clarify why understanding how all of these different things work together, even the math and the science behind it, is absolutely crucial to finding solutions for the future. So. Without further ado, here is Dr. Kerry King. Thank you very much for taking very the much. time to speak with me. Uh, I understand you're very busy, so I appreciate it. No problem. You're, you're welcome, Rachel. Since uh, you were recommended, I unfortunately have not had time to read the, your book, The Economic Superorganism, because um, I was moving country, unfortunately. But I would love, <laughs> right. having read around it a little bit, um, I would absolutely love to get into what we can over the next hour, which I'm sure will only just be scratching the surface, but your research looks fascinating. Right, right. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll give you a, a, a synopsis here. Um, the book is largely about how to think about energy in, in the economy or resource consumption in the economy. And it starts with the, the group of narratives on two different levels. One is energy narratives and the other is economic narratives. Okay. And then I use these to say how these are in some sense kind of insufficient, but this is what we mostly hear in the news and in the media about energy and the economy. But these are really insufficient ways to talk about energy by itself or economy, the economy by itself or the interactions between them. And that thinking about the economy as a, as a physical system that acts in many ways, like biological systems, is a more holistic way to think about how the economy works and helps us understand what the trends of the economy are. For example, the, the, the pattern between 
primary energy consumption and GDP, for example. So mm. the, the energy narratives on our, uh, I just pose as, you know, extreme cases are, you know, renewable energy and fossil energy on the other side, right? So if you read any given news article, you'll, maybe somebody's really promoting renewable energy or really promoting fossil or they're uh, speaking badly against one or the other or pointing out the, the cons of one uh, type of energy technology or another. So, you, you know, there's plenty of things in the news and media uh, about this. And then the economic narratives are techno-optimism and then techno-realism. So techno-optimism is maybe close, more closely what it sounds like, uh, which is, you know, technology solves, may create problems, but it solves problems as well. And if, if we generate the right technology, we can solve uh, our particular problems, whatever they may be, environmental, social problems. And that, uh, you know, so technology is the solution to, to, to everything, essentially. And that you can substitute resources um, in any means uh, to achieve your technological goals. So in, in some sense, there's infinite substitutability of resources and technologies. On the other side is techno-realism. I didn't call it techno-pessimism, but I called it techno-realism, <laughs> which is to say that, okay, it, it doesn't deny that technology plays a role, doesn't deny that humans, you know, essentially create things that didn't exist outside of our own species. Um, so we have a lot of interesting gadgets, but they do have limits. And the limits are related to things like the laws of thermodynamics or just the conservation of flow, of mass, and, and how much energy it takes just to distribute things and the size of the earth. So it takes to heart that hey, the earth is finite in size. Um, resources are fundamentally unlimited. So that these limits might be actually dictating um, constraints on our technological solutions, and they might be dictating constraints on our social outcomes. So if you don't account for these, if you just assume that earth is infinite and then go along your economic modeling, you might get the wrong answers and you might get, therefore, promote the wrong policies. Whereas the alternative is to just say, well, I'll just take the obvious that is the earth is finite and please spur. Uh, most of our history, we've been confined to the earth, even though, you know, we do send satellites into space and this kind of thing. Um, but you need to somehow take into account some basic physical constraints and then apply those to your economic thinking. Otherwise, you're just going to get the wrong conclusions. So that's the techno-realism versus techno-optimism and fossil fuels versus renewables. The book has an entire chapter, uh, chapter three, where I just go through examples of these in the news. Here's somebody said this and somebody said another thing. So that's an, that's an entire chapter in the book. Let's, uh, let's, let, okay. You've said a huge amount of fascinating things mm -hmm. already that I would love to get into. Um, right. The, let's talk with, about some of the narratives. Now, when you say there's economic narratives and there's energy narratives, I assume that, um, what you're saying is that there are certain beliefs upon which economics or um, policy is, you know, are modeled. Like, you know, the fact that um, the earth has an infinite amount of resources. Like, that's just a false narrative. Um, is, that, is that what you mean? Uh, something like that. So the, so the book goes through uh, a few of them, uh, like, you know, size. You're kind of talking about size. How big is the resource? And, you know, you can find information. On for fossil fuels, the resource is so big that we don't need to worry about it running out. And in fact, you know, something like reserves of fossil fuels are growing over time because uh, if we find more or the price goes up. 
Um, same thing for renewables, right? Some people quote how much sunlight hits the earth and well, size is a problem. So size is just one topic, one example topic at which people will tell a story about how, don't tell me this resource isn't big enough. It's, it's big enough. Mm. So let's go to the next thing. So there's other thing, other sort of topics like that that I bring up, like price, you know, whose is the highest cost or lowest cost in price. Um, chapter two is all about expenditures versus price. So I spend an entire chapter going over historical data on energy expenditures, which is essentially price times how much you consume. So, right, dollars per barrel of oil times barrels of oil gives total dollars spent. And that's mm. a more economy-wide metric of the cost of energy as opposed to just looking at the price of any one uh, type of energy, right? So we add them all together. Only by adding all together everything we spend on energy can you understand the macroeconomic implications of the cost of energy. Any individual price is kind of less important, right? It matters how much you consume it. So, so price is one of the narratives. Let's just say people in the United States often talk about if you're, if you're maybe a little bit anti-renewable on the side, you'll point to Germany or California and they're a little bit more proactive policies to decarbonization and say, well, their electricity price is three times the price of the average electricity price in Texas or the United States average amount of dollars per kilowatt hour or cents per kilowatt hour basis. Well, when you look at it, California tends to consume three times less electricity and Germany kind of consumed almost three times less electricity. So when you multiply them together, they're roughly the same amount of money for gross state product or GDP. Okay. And there's a lot of distributions in there about, you know, rich and poor and this kind of thing uh, that are, uh, can complicate that, but that's, that's the, <clears throat> that's kind of the first level to get beyond price and get to expenditures. They're, they're both important to think about, but so another topic is reliability. And then, and the narratives like, you know, you're reliable. I'm not reliable. What does that even mean? Right? Reliable is kind of, it's a word that's not often, well, it's a word that most people might use, but they don't use it in the strict context of describing energy delivery. Right. <laughs> okay. So what does it even mean to say that a wind turbine is not reliable? You're like, well, it's a, it's a machine that sits out on the land that spins when the wind blows on it. And what do you mean? It's reliable. Was it does it work when the wind blows on it mm. every time? Well, isn't that reliable? Or, or you're saying the wind's not reliable? Well, the wind is an inanimate object; it's a physical process because of the spinning of the earth and how the sun's <laughs> oriented towards it. What, what it, you know, what's not reliable about that? So, so I, I have quotes on each one of these of people saying something's reliable, and then somebody saying the exact same thing is unreliable. Right? The sun, the wind. Right? Um, but in, in terms of that particular topic, I go into what it means for electricity generation. And the point there is that timescales matter, right? If you're interested on, is something going to be repeatable or predictable at what timescale are you interested? It could be seconds or mm. less than seconds for the electric grid in terms of, you know, the alternating currents in mm. the U.S. 60 cycles per second or 50 in, in Europe. So, so timescales less than a second actually are relevant for thinking about the grid stability. Uh, but then you can go to multi different kinds of timescales all the way to, to decades, which is uh, important for, you know, planning infrastructure or understanding how long infrastructure, different types of power plants or transmission lines, how long they're going to last. And is it reliable on that timescale? So, um, and then there's timescales in the middle. So people essentially talk around these because they're not usually thinking too deeply about it. They're just trying to make a, a point based upon a narrative that says, X is reliable or unreliable. 
fifth one is morality, right? This is it is more moral to use renewables or fossil fuels. Um, the the, the <laughs> renewable uh, fossil fuel debate I just find so interesting um, because I would say my instinct as a layman, obviously, is to say fossil fuels are bad and let's move over to um, renewables ASAP. However, um, I find, it, I, essentially, I, I learned um, last year about how sustainable p plastic is as a material, if you can create the kind of plastics that can be recycled. And it completely shifted my understanding of what actually constitutes, um, what is sustainable. Um, and certainly when you look at the renewable energy, what materials they're made out of, um, the fact that a, a wind turbine will never be able to pr produce as much energy as it takes to create that very turbine, all of this kind of thing. It doesn't make it as clear cut as, um, you know, your average Joes like me in the population would want it to be in order to throw your weight behind the solution. Is there any one solution we can throw our weight behind? Oh, uh yeah, I, I would say no. I mean, the book, I'd say my book tries to, maybe doesn't actually make such a statement. Maybe I sh should have, but <clears throat> tries to make you think about everything put together as a system. Mm -hmm. I definitely have a lot of discussions about systems of, of combining these things. So, you know, my conclusion is we're, what we're debating about is, you know, human-made, you know, infrastructure, metals, various materials, and we're deciding which <clears throat> trying to decide which ones we like for whatever reasons. Mm. Um, and so they're all, they're all human made infrastructure, right? So somebody was asking me at a, at a, at a gathering. So wait, are you saying it's, is it good or is it not good to put solar on my house? And my answer is I'm not telling you whether it's good or bad. I don't think the answer is good or bad. It just is like, do you, do we want to generate more electricity? Uh, but then, uh, there's many ways to do that. And. Uh, and you can use all of them. If greenhouse gases is a really important thing, yeah, we should we should move to these other um, uh, clearly lower carbon emitting technologies. So on the narrative side, you know, someone who's maybe a little anti-renewable would say, well, you got carbon emissions from wind panels or wind wind turbines and solar panels, constructing them in the concrete. And you go, yes, you know, they're clearly also much less greenhouse gas emitting than just burning fossil fuels. So they're they're sort of the obvious answer that you have to go to. Some people look at, so you mentioned the, the materials. Okay. So there's a lot of materials, um, in solar panels, wind turbines, also in gas turbines, you know, okay. a, a gas combustion turbine might be one of the most highly refined materials in terms of the turbine blades that, that, that there is, right. It's supposed to extremely high temperatures and not spinning at high rates, uh, highly refined uh, alloys. So. You know, how many materials, kilograms of materials take to generate a kilowatt hour? One of the, you know, I show one, just one example table. Well, if you don't think about the mass of the fossil fuels that you burn, and then that go into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide, which is the mass that used to be underground and now you've thrown it in the air. Well, now there's a lot more mass associated with fossil fuel electricity than there is with renewable electricity. So mm -hmm. if you count the mass of the fuel, it's more mass per kilowatt hour. If you if you ignore the mass of the fuel and you just look at the infrastructure, the power plant, I think it's less mass of the fuel. So, uh, so some of the book is to just tell people, well, here's how people phrase things to you. And here's a little bit more deeper thinking about if it's not just one way or the other. Mm -hmm. um, 
on the wind turbine thing and energy return on invested types ideas, uh, yeah, people debate these things back and forth. The, some of the difficulties of people, so I, I would say the wind turbines produce more energy over their lifetime than during their construction, of course, doesn't do it immediately. Um, but the, uh, the difficulty becomes changing forms of energy actually. So if you're generating electricity, but you use heat and liquid fuels and, and electricity as inputs, uh, you know, in the life cycle of a wind turbine, for example, uh, that, you know, comparing these things can, you, you could get into academic discussions about hmm. how you should or should not do that. And the, the fundamental difficulty is, you know, all energy does not come in the same form and how are you supposed to add them together? Yeah. Thermodynamics and rules, how we add them together. But when you're thinking about life cycles and economic implications, it can be maybe a little, a little less clear, but I don't think we have to go there. No, no, let's, let's, I mean, let's go as far as we can. Um, would you say that one thing we absolutely have to do is reduce our overall consumption of energy? I would say if, in, in a practical sense, if the goal is to limit greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere, I don't know how we're going to get there by just making more technology. It's interesting and, that you say if. Though, like, if the goal is to reduce greenhouse gases, yeah. I mean, what else well, I, would the goal be at this stage? Oh, well, I'm just saying I'm not protecting the goal of every person in the world. So, like, I guess right. I just mean it from that standpoint. Um, so, so the book um, gotten a little more philosophical as I wrote it towards mm -hmm. the end mm -hmm. uh, than I thought, and it quietly gets to what you just asked there. Um, I was going to call the book, or I was essentially proposing to title the book, Knocking Down the Narratives, in the sense that there are these narratives and we need to just not use them and we need to think about a different way. And the different way is not necessarily, you know, my, my idea, but but the economy is a super organism. Mm -hmm. And so then that became, became the title of the book. And if you think about organisms or biological evolution, uh, the, the, the origin of life to where we are today, right? If we've all kind of come from some primordial soup and then here we are, human and homo sapiens, where as far as we can tell, the most capable we're creature on earth, we're species and we dominate the planet, you know, have spread, we have many of us and we have spread genetic material in our cells and in form raised animals and <clears throat> decreased other kinds of species as well as we've expanded. So the question is, is there a question or is there an answer to the question? Well, why are we doing this? And I think maybe there's no answer to that question of why. Um, it's the ecologists, uh, Alfred Lockton in 1922 came up with, um, an idea that later became phrased as the maximum power principle by Howard Odom, which was their observation or hypothesis of looking at ecosystems and saying that um, what ecosystems seem to do is extract as much, uh, extract resources at the highest rate possible from the environment. Mm -hmm. And in terms of procreating and creating more other species or, mm -hmm. you know, creating structures like ant colonies or these kinds of things. And that the combination of, um, species and an ecosystem will, uh, you know, how many, how many individuals of one species are there compared to how many individuals of another species, right? Uh, that these will kind of. Um, create a proportion that maximizes the energy extraction from the environment. 
And so when she, so if you take that idea and you say, well, are humans any different? Are we any different? We're evolved creatures. We, we've come from the same, same evolutionary tree. We branched off. Um, how would we know if that's all we're trying to do as well, even without thinking? Mm. Is the economy, uh, is this human society all about just extracting more resources from the environment, uh, even if we don't understand why or that we're doing it? Mm -hmm. I don't know how we answered this question. The book is about how it's hard to answer this question, but how the data support that the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we do, we have multiplied them uh, in certainly since we found fossil fuels, but even before that, um, we are consuming more energy year over year. Um, we are creating more structures year over year. And so in this sense of the maximum power principle, We'll do that until we can't anymore. I'm so glad <laughs> that you brought that up and written about it in your book, because um, one of the themes of rhetoric that I find a little bit um, unsettling about, you know, the climate crisis or even about capitalism is that um, there tends to be one scapegoat, like, for example, the economic system as to why the, the world is sort of getting increasingly uh, dangerous uh, for humanity. And yet, surely, I think there's been this, there's a driving force in humankind, surely, to consume in this way or to behave in this way. And that we need to get to the root of that in order to be able to solve the problem long term. Like, yes, we have until 2030 to figure out how to best manage the climate crisis. And we're going to need, uh, you know, solutions ASAP. But unless we get to the bottom of essentially our uh, ontological nature. How are we actually ever going to solve it in the long term? Uh, this is this is sort of the good, that, but the question, of course, I, I guess I won't claim to know the answer. But from the perspective of the book, I ex I try to explain why people think you, you can sort of have your cake and eat it too, mm. uh, if you will, um, in the sense of I can have my growing economy and my lowering carbon emissions at the same time. So this is the prevailing view. This is what I put into the techno-optimistic uh, narrative. And a lot of this comes from economic theory, not necessarily maybe capitalism, but I guess the economic theory has mostly been phrased in the context of, of capitalism or private ownership, seeking profits, and that sort of strict definition of, of the word. And, you know, chapter six of my book describes sort of history of brief history of economic modeling and how people thinking more deeply about uh, energy and how to think about energy in the context of the economy have, I think, some better ideas that are more uh, explanatory about what's going on. So the, let's just say the prevailing view would use, a, you know, uses well, air quotes here, uh, you know, neoclassical, most not really air quotes, I guess, neoclassical um, growth model, or usually this, what's called the exogenous growth model. That's just, you know, the GDP is equal to some aggregate capital times aggregate labor, both of these two are power. And then there's a technological growth of factor. The technological growth factor is really an assumption into the growth model itself. It's not a, it's not defined as to what it is. Uh, this is called total factor productivity in the, in the jargon. Mm -hmm. And many people just call it productivity or technological progress. Maybe if you're reading a general article, uh, but the point is most economic models of future growth use this construct, which is to say they'll 
say, I assume I'm going to build a bunch of different solar panels and wind turbines and do a carbon capture, build biomass plants, carbon capture. These all get aggregated into this number of capital, but in money units. And they say, okay, if I have this much capital, let me put this growth formula. This is how GDP tends to grow. Um, but the problem is that there's absolutely zero linkage and zero feedback between what type of capital you're making, how much energy it's extracting, how much it costs to extract that energy, and this quote-unquote technological growth uh, factor. Um, it, in some sense, nobody really denies this is the case of this particular model. It's, that's sort of part of its definition. That, and so it's not necessarily a problem that that's, here's a model that doesn't describe the real world uh, super accurately. So half of the economic growth is built up in this exogenous technological growth term. The problem is that most models that are projecting climate policy or energy policy are using this model, which by definition doesn't have a role for energy to play in it. So uh. if you're going to transform the entire energy system into something new in a very short period of time, this model is essentially too inaccurate to actually inform you what's the implications are. So, so, so in, in the book, I just, I kind of described this. So I think people are being misled because they think the model is telling them something. They think, well, when people run these models, they're saying, well, if I make this set of investments, here's what happens to GDP and maybe something about wages or something like that. But what the models really do is say, well, if I assume GDP goes this up this much, here's all these things I think I can do underneath that. Uh, and that's not the question we're trying to ask. <laughs> that's not the answer. That's not the question we're asking. No. So, you know, that's why I've kind of shifted my, uh, my research towards trying to make a new kind of economic model. And it's why Steve Keen said, when, you know, maybe go talk to Kerry as well, because, you know, I've followed some of his work and he said, okay, well, that's, I see that. And that's kind of the basics of the economic system. I'm going to add in what I know about uh, physical modeling, energy system modeling, and I try to merge these two things together so that I have an economic framework that's consistent in tracking energy and material flows at the exact same, same time. It's consistent with tracking how money flows in a modern economy, including debt and private debt and, and these kinds of things. So that's what I'm working on. I hinted that in the book, but the book is not about describing that, that modeling per se, but it is about explaining the problem of how economic models that are mostly used today are not doing what people think they're doing. Mm. And if you get, don't get into the details, then it's easy for you to say, look, there's a lot of, look at all these, you know, really smart people and academics and think tanks or whoever else who ran these models. And they say, I can, we can go to even that negative, uh, carbon emissions in, you know, whatever, 10 years, 30 years and, um, the economy keep growing. And I look at that and I think, well, most of them are using this other kind of modeling framework and I know it's inapplicable to answer that question. So, uh. so I try to move on and try something, something I think is more accurate, uh, still in development, but, but I, but I think it has some, some more, uh, there's some better explanatory power, I guess. Everything's percolating. <laughs> Everything yeah, you're right, saying is right. percolating. Um, and I have a couple of thoughts. Um, trying to synthesize everything that you've said, you know, about um, the economy is a super organism. So multiple things that are working together, this system of how things work together in their relationships. Um, and then about energy 
and the economy. Would it be possible, do you think, to add, or useful even, to add a new value? So rather than just looking at cost in USD, and rather than just looking at, um, I don't, I don't know anything about energy, so I don't know, like kilowatts per hour of like output. Would it be useful to actually create a new term for describing the relationship between those things, as you've suggested? Like, how much does this energy actually well, overall cost to produce? Um, like, if I on you know the Apple website in the future, if yeah, I know. Sorry, bear with me. <laughs> if you could see. Um, like if you could see how inefficient or efficient the, the cost of making that iPhone was, if there was a value for that, really describing the relationship between, um, yeah, between financial cost and energy. Well, I'll, I'll say some things which I think will maybe kind of address your question, maybe not all the way. Um, this, I'll say one thing in chapter two of the book is, just kind of going over historical data. And one of the sets of data it goes into is estimates of energy spending does this for the United Kingdom for the United States and the world. And as, you, as I get bigger, I go from UK to the US to the world, the, the time series of the data gets shorter. But for the United Kingdom, there's an available data set going back to in the year 1300, essentially on how much um, money was spent on energy or energy services, um, including food, you could kind of throw in food for human labors, uh, doing muscle work. So how much money was spent to do, uh, on energy? Like, so this would be like burning wood for heat or, uh, feeding um, fodder to animals to help plow the land. And. Uh, even you could even include food for humans that are farmers at then, because almost everyone's a farmer at that point. And you're, you're the machine, right? You're, it's a biomass economy. Uh, and so going into the present time. And so when you're a sort of biomass economy in the UK, you know, 50 or 60%, if you add up all the money spent on energy and divide by GDP, it's something like 50 or 60% of GDP. So that's in some sense, expensive energy compared to after the industrial revolution and using coal and having modern machines or prime movers, uh, like steam engines and steam turbines and, and turtle combustion engines. Now we are, you know, less than, less than 10%, right? Uh, of, if we add up all the money spent on energy and divide by GDP of modern countries or industrial countries or the world overall, it's, it's well less than 10%. And indeed, when it gets to about 8% in primary energy, that's kind of indi indicating a recession. So that's kind of indicating the cost is too high to grow the economy. It's, and that happened in the 1970s and it happened in 2008, the peak of the financial crisis. So there's only the, the only two times it happened uh, since World War II that energy spending divided by GDP got to about 8% worldwide. So that's one way to think about the overall cost of energy as something too expensive or not. So. So that informs a lot of my thinking. I'm thinking, I, I look at that and I think, well, I need a model that has this feedback in it. Right. I need to know if that energy system has grown so big, either physical terms or monetary terms, or maybe both, and they just always come together, that this feedback can essentially cause the rest of the economy to shrink so much that uh, you'll have a recession. Now, it doesn't mean that a recession is the end all be all of existence, and maybe that's okay. Uh, particularly 
uh, to decarbonize the economy. Maybe it's a 20 year, uh, all hands on deck effort and mm. the economy as we think about it today, or GDP does it increase or maybe decreases, but Hey, at the, at the end of it, you have this energy system that's low carbon and then you can, uh, then you can kind of go back to maybe more, you know, business as usual. Like how do we grow the economy? Uh, <laughs> but so that's how I th think about it. But I think the issue is that most people think you don't even have to consider that as a possibility. They're like, no, that doesn't happen. That's not going to happen. If I invest in more renewables and carbon capture and all these other things, the economy is going to grow even faster. And I think they just have a fundamental neglect of understanding the physical nature of the economy. And that's where the concept of, or the, the new narrative, if you will, economic superorganism comes into, which is to say the economy, just like animals or ant colonies, has to take in resources from the environment. It uses these resources to maintain itself or to restructure itself. And it uses the re these resources to make more of itself. Um, so if I take in a unit of energy from the environment, I have to run the machines I have, like as fuel. That's one thing to do. I have to use some of that energy to make a new machine if I want one. So that's another use of energy. And a third use at a fundamental level is I'm keeping people alive, like food or something, right? Or energy going to houses or something that goes to people. These are kind of the fundamental three things or allocations of energy. And it's the shifting of these allocations that translates to, you know, perhaps, a, a, you know, a shrinking economy or something. If I'm building a lot of infrastructure really quickly, well, one of these other two allocations is going to go down and you can't really make the allocation of energy to the machines as fuel go down because those machines are making the new machines, right? Mm -hmm. In some sense, right? Some of them can go down where you can say, well, I just don't want to do any more of these X, Y, Z processes and these sectors of the economy. They're, you know, they're not as important to low carbon transition, but it also might be that less gets allocated to uh, the consumer sector, if you will, uh, humans. And this is again, where the um, sort of economic superorganism kind of idea can help a little bit as well. Uh, when you look in the pattern of, well, this has been looked at since the 1930s and then some new understandings and understandings of this came out, uh, you know, sort of 10 to 20 years ago in terms of relationship between energy consumption and size. And if you, for, for animals like mammals, multi-celled creatures, it's been known since, since the thirties that, um, if, if an animal becomes 10 times bigger in size, or if you compare one species to another, that's 10 times bigger in size, the larger animal doesn't consume 10 times more energy, right? In, in terms of food for, for the animal. Yeah. So as you know, like, you know, compare a mouse to an elephant, a mouse is, or an elephant is, I don't know how many magnitudes uh, more massive than a, than a mouse, five times at six. I, I, I don't know their amounts on top. But, but yeah, again, it's not the same order of magnitude, larger energy consumption. So this is, it's termed what, what it, in jargon we call a sublinear scaling law, which means, and it was essentially mass to the three quarter power. And so sublinear means less than one. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you say energy consumption of a or food consumption of a, of an animal, um, goes increases at the rate of mass to three quarter power. So if you're 10 times. So the three quarter power, if you're 10 times higher mass, you're, you consume something like 5.6 times more energy. And so bigger 
is more energy overall. It, it actually is more total energy, but it's less energy per mass. And so a lot of people look at this and they think, well, it's more efficient. There's less energy per unit of size. There's less energy per mass. But at the exact same time, it's more total energy. And this is what most people miss when they think about efficiency in general. They're like, well, I got a more efficient computer or a more efficient car or air conditioner or something like this. And they're like, yes. But the point is you've got more air conditioners and you've got more cars. <laughs> and so when you add them all up, it's more energy consumption right over the world overall. Mm. And you just look at the data and you say, look, that's what the data, look at the global data. The global data are we the global economy is consuming more energy year after year with some hiccups in there for uh, recessions and things. But, you know, decade after decade, we're consuming more. And in fact, we are making things more efficient for each individual device. Um, and so this concept been around since the 1860s and, you know, William Stanley Jevons and what became known as Jevons paradox in terms of why making things more efficient uh, doesn't decrease consumption, but actually increases the rate of consumption of resources. And this is really an evolutionary type concept because you have to think about it over time. If you think about it only as a snapshot in an instant, you, you can't reason out the answer. Because in an instant, I only have a certain number of machines out there and a certain number of people. And it's fixed, right? If I just take a snapshot right now. So I say, well, if I made all these machines more efficient and I had the exact same number of machines doing the exact same thing that they do now, I'll consume less energy. And the answer is yes. But that's not what happens. We make new devices and you don't immediately just replace an old device. You make a new one that's more efficient. And the old device is still there. Uh... And then we accumulate more people. So you're accumulating devices. And the new ones you're accumulating are more efficient. And that means there's less energy per widget, which is just like less energy per mass of an animal. But the point is you've got more widgets. And so when you, you can look at data and I can, uh, in the book, I just have a couple of examples of, um, economic sort of energy data in, in the United States. And from the 1970s till present, right, there's less energy use per car. So this is just like less energy use per mass of a, of an animal, uh, from the 1970s for homes, the, the average household in the United States, there's less energy consumed per household uh, as you accumulate numbers of households. And that's just like oh. the same thing that you would have per mass. So it, you had the opposite effect for households leading after world war II, leading up to 1970. So every house built was consuming more energy yeah. than the previous house, yeah. but then after the seventies and sort of oil prices and uh, energy price rises and the idea of efficiency as a policy came into being in the 1970s. It wasn't policy before that. It was, there was no policy, was, right. you know, for, uh, end user efficiency before then. So what this tells me is that it's, it's a more consistent story. I think scientifically, economically to say that, yeah, okay, but at least since the 1970s, that the world economy is operating like a super organism in the sense that it has constraint on how fast it can access resources. And in order to grow, it's in some sense physically necessary that any next, the next unit of thing that grows that you add or invest in, in the economy, the next unit of widget, in some sense, if it's going to work and maintain itself uh, or be helping the economy maintain itself, it's going to have to consume less energy than the widgets before, uh, for whatever its job is. And that's exactly what animals do, but we don't think about it. I mean, it's what it's when we grow from a baby to a, a full grown person, 
you know, our head is really big, uh, relative to the rest of our body because they're, you know, so our brain is a relatively large percentage of our mass. And then it becomes less so. Now, the point of that is that the brain is the highest energy intensive consuming organ in the body. It's, 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 you know, 40 times, consumes 40 times more energy per kilogram than like muscles in, uh, in my arms, so, you know, mm. regular muscles. But what do we, when we grow, what, what is the thing that grows the fastest? Uh, it's things like muscles and bones, and these are low energy consumption per mass types of you know, cells. So we're not thinking about doing that, but that's, that's essentially how we grow. When we come out of the womb, we're essentially the structure, the same structure we're going to be when we're an adult. We got a liver, we got lungs, heart, arms, legs, eyes, we get all the parts. Um, we didn't start with all the parts, of course, but we get all the parts and we come out and you're just growing parts. You're just growing them at different rates. And so that's just another example of, okay, that's how biological organisms work. In some sense, you might just say, you know, evolution and, you know, natural selection in terms of this, but I guess natural selection on top of evolution dictates that this is sort of what has to happen and it's acting in the world of, you know, physical constraints. So the economy is in some sense no different that the, the uh, book discusses this for ant colonies, they have the same some sublinear scaling between energy and mass. Mass here is the mass of the ants in the ant colony. And if you're a leaf cutting ant, like a fun, farming fungus, you're bringing leaves into the nest and then growing fungus on it. And then you're feeding off of that. So you're kind of a farming ant colony. They have this sublinear scaling uh, as well. And one of the fascinating things in reading a little bit of ant literature is that one of the reasons why this happens is if you have more ants in the ant colony, there's a higher percentage of them that are basically standing still, not really doing anything. So if you have a hundred ants in their ant colony, maybe there's 50 of them kind of standing around, not doing much. And the other 50 are doing in some task and foraging. If you have a hundred ants, you're going to have more, or if you have 200 ants, sorry, like double the ants. You know, you're not going to have more than double the ants that are kind of standing around. So instead of having two times 50 equals a hundred, you might have 120 ants that are kind of sitting around, not really doing something or waiting to do something. And that's part of why the metabolism doesn't go up as fast as the mass of the ant colony. It's because actually just have them sitting around. Well, why are they doing that? I don't know if there's a question. I don't know if there's an answer to why it, I haven't read enough to well, surely how much people they, understand this. They don't need to. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I, I mean, I think this, for me, that's, yeah, that's, that's the answer I have at the moment. Uh, yeah. Well, they don't need to, there's nothing for them to do to, uh, uh maintain. They'll just be walking around, you know, with no particular purpose. So we could argue, you know, or we could have a fun discussion whether or not, you know, we're following this pattern or not be sitting in a desk, you know, uh, working and, and as opposed to moving around. And whether I'm a stationary hand. Um, <laughs> well, it's yeah, it's funny. Know. It made me think of um, David Graeber's bullshit jobs. His, you right, know, analysis right. of middle management, how it's essentially just, you got it. I haven't read it. It's been referenced to me a lot. I read his book on debt. Um, but that, yeah, that's exactly that what it made me think of. That one too. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> so, yeah. So I have those too. So it could be, right? Um, the ants... And instead of giving them a bullshit job, they're, they're just like, well, you just stay there. I mean, maybe, maybe they're doing the bullshit job that we don't understand mm -hmm. in, in, in the ant colony. I, I don't know. 
uh, adapt it, but, but I, it, I don't know. It's interesting because, mm-hmm. um, and you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but essentially I think what David is arguing is that it's a bullshit job because it's creating a quote-unquote purpose or a role for somebody um, where there is absolutely no need for them in order to continue the, the justification of constant growth, essentially. Right. Yeah, I, I probably not have a better, if I recount ex- exactly his definition, I reference it in, in, in the book as well, at least his main story at yeah. the beginning of the book about the the, the German person with the, with the job. <laughs> uh, I guess that started uh, in writing the book. But we, we could definitely, I mean, I think it's an appropriate uh, thing to think about for sure. I mean, um, I don't know. I think one of my favorite examples is maybe, you know, tabloid journalism or uh, you know, tracking celebrities and magazines that take pictures of celebrities walking around doing things. They're like, what, you know, mm. in, in, a, in a classic economic sense, people in sense, what's the productive use of this? This mm. is, uh, you know, I don't need to know. I mean, there's a whole class of society or class of science, the wrong word, strike that. But the, you know, like, oh, I don't know what percentage of the population sort of indulges in that on a regular basis. Enough. I just know I'm not one. Yeah, I just know I'm not one of them. So mm. there's, there's a group that pays attention to it and it's a group that doesn't. Um, if it was gone, you know, yeah. And, and the Graeber's bullshit job sense, if it was gone, would, would anybody really notice it? So I, that's my example of one, if it's gone, uh, mm. I, I, I wouldn't notice. And I, that were, yeah. So I, I don't think I, I would think notice anything. I think that, that's an interesting example. Cause I think a lot of people would, because I think entertainment is absolutely key, um, to, essentially numbing people enough to accept the, the society that we live in, to accept the fact that resource distribution does not happen on a fail scale, uh, fair scale, and to accept the fact that you constantly do have to be moving or doing this in order to justify, you know, your existence, essentially. Like, we don't really have a value system, um, a, a human value system, I would say, in our economy. Um, but it makes me think of... Um, this question that I've read about in management books, funnily enough, which is about efficiency versus effectiveness and how effectiveness is the value that we all need to be working towards, but we have an obsession with efficiency. And it doesn't matter if you're efficient. Is is what you're doing effective to the goal that you have? So for example, um, exactly as you're saying, if the overall goal is to reduce energy consumption, well, producing new effective machines and putting them out on sale immediately so that they're bought up and, and then updating those every year or whatever, that's not effective to, uh, that's not an effective way of reaching the goal, even if it is about, you know, you have done something more efficiently. Um, and with the ant, I think that that's a fantastic example as well, because it would be more efficient for the ants to take everybody out um, to do the work maybe in half the time, say all 200 of them go out to cut leaves and bring them back to the, um, colony nest. Um, yeah. well, maybe not exactly. It's about the flow of energy at any instant. That is the constraint, not about, uh, purely the energy or purely the time, but essentially about energy divided by time and the flow. So, so the ants, you know, if, if all the ants were, uh, collecting leaves, they might be consuming energy at too high of a rate for the rate of fungus that's growing in the ant colony. Mm-hmm. So they might actually be sitting relatively stagnant because the rate of fungus growth in the ant colony, which, and there's ants working in the colony, feeding larvae, tending to them, these kinds of things. 
might might uh, actually be the, well, the constraint. So there's always a difference between energy and power. That's always we don't have to go into that. But no, but energy I, is stuck, and and power is the flow or the rate at which energy is consumed, and that's the constraint at any instant. Uh, you know, in economy or the real world. Hey, repeat that. Energy is the stock and power is the flow. So, yeah. So just like, the, you know, in a systems context, you're sort of getting into one of the general systems things, right? System is defined by what it does, right? So it might be related to your effectiveness and efficiency. You know, the purpose of something is defined by what it does, not by what you think it should do mm. or what somebody says they think it should do if it does something else. I think it should do A, but it really does B. Mm. But believe me, the, the purpose is A. And you're like, well, I don't know, it does B. Uh, maybe the purpose is actually B. Mm. Uh, you need to rethink that. But back on, so the classic way to think about stocks and flows is the bathtub. Um, there's a stock of water, so much volume is in there. Mm -hmm. And it can fill up by a flow of water from the faucet. And it can empty uh, through a flow of water out the, out the drain. So this flows in, flows out, and then a stock in the in the tub. So instead of thinking about water, energy is, is like the volume of water. Energy is the stock. It's a quantity of stuff. What we, it's an accounting construct when it comes down to it. It's an energy accounting. I mean, it's a counting construct that we call energy. Uh, and the flows in are power. So power in minus power out that equals the change stock of energy. So you have a, a charge in your phone, a mobile phone, uh, and you're storing electrochemical energy in a lithium ion battery, say, so it has a stock of energy in it. But when you use your phone, you are, have a flow of power going out of your phone that, that is discharging the battery because you're, it's, it's, it's doing computations, um, when you're making a phone call or searching web or something like that. And that's a, that's like a drain of water out of a tub. Mm -hmm. It's a full electrons energy out of the phone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well. And this, again, kind of, if I may, go back to your economic superorganism idea. Um, you know, the most efficiency, the most efficiency, <laughs> the most efficient battery on the planet will um, charge quickly and reduce the power out as much as possible. But surely, if you want to think about the overall systems of how economies work together and the relationships between things, and that would also be between humanity and its resources, then the most effective thing to do would be to limit, rather than constantly producing a more efficient battery, that means nothing in the paradox that you've um, explained if we're not also decreasing our use of that. So that's where the effectiveness would come in. Well, let me say one thing and then to go back to your question. Um, there is, so I brought up this idea of the maximum power, maximum power principle, which is in some sense not proved. I don't know how provable it is, but, um, but it's saying, it's posing that ecosystems in this case, and then we can think about the economy's goals to, is to extract more resources from the environment, to convert more mm -hmm. energy into the environment to making more stuff. And then you dissipate some energy because of second law of thermodynamics. That's different, specifically different than increasing the efficiency of doing that, or of any given process or of all the processes added together. So from a physics standpoint, um, I can't have a hundred percent efficient device, but if I did, um, it could actually do no work. So, um, so at zero percent efficiency, it's kind of obvious. I can't do anything. I've taken all the fuel in and it produces no work on the output. Um, so work in that engineering sense or physics sense is force, but force times distance, right? Or, you know, I, I, 
that's this. I made it simplest way, you know, like raising something from the table up. I've done work against gravity, against the force of gravity. And uh, I've moved it up a distance of a foot from my desk up, up high. So, so I've done some work. So if I'm a hundred, if it hundred percent, so either some, so work can be zero if either force is zero or distance is zero. I mean, force to not be zero and distance to not be zero, right? To multiply them again. The okay. point of efficiency is, uh, and zero percent efficiency, one of them is zero, but at hundred percent efficiency, the other one is zero oh. uh, in terms of power conversion. So I actually said force and distance, but it's really force and velocity if we want to think about power flows. So at a hundred percent efficiency, I have, I can oppose only a zero force. <laughs> I can't, I can't, I can't push against anything. Oh. Uh, I have no force. But at a 0% efficiency, uh, I can't, I have no velocity. <laughs> what? Uh, so Why? It's, it's so, so efficiency has got to be in between to actually do a real physical work process, to, to move anything, to, to do anything that we observe in the real world has to have an efficiency between 0 and 100. Well, I mean, surely that's the argument that would shut the techno-optimists up. Um. Uh, potentially, uh, I guess they might argue... Uh, we'll just, yeah, I mean, that's, I know that's a good point. I don't know. You didn't write that in the book. So I, I don't know if they think about, I think, I think maybe not. I mean, there's a book I reference, uh, oh, that's 15 years old now, um, that we used to use for my class, but now I use the book I wrote for my class. And I, this book is The Bottomless Well. And I'd say they're mostly, they're, it's kind of a techno-optimistic book. So that's why I would use it. It's, it's sort of a techno-optimism framework. And then I previously used the, the last version of the Limits to Growth book as a sort of techno-realistic. Uh, and I made the students read it so that they could realize that there are two different perspectives and they're mm. largely talking about the same data and they're, they're not really, you know, they're not arguing about the data that much. They're arguing about an interpretation of the data. And so the, you know, the bottomless well authors would say, yeah, more efficiency is good, uh, but they recognize the second law of third dynamics. And like, yeah, which is to say, uh, people say, well, let's get rid of waste. And they're like, well, you can't get rid of waste. It's the second law. So it's mm. waste energy. So you can't. So don't focus on that. That's dumb. Um, and just try to maximize efficiency as much as you can. So they may, a techno-optimist may or may not have thought of this, um, that idea. But if they have, they would probably say, well, we'll just make the efficiency as large as we can. And if we've reached the limits on efficiency and Every technology we have now, we'll just make a, a new technology that's based on some other physical principle or uses a different resource, and then we'll start maximizing efficiency or power flow from that. But that, that would be my, that's, that's my guess. That's really <laughs> interesting. So at what point now, you're, I'm going to betray my complete lack of understanding about science and physics here, but at what point is efficiency maximized then? Because surely even if you went up to 99% efficient, then you don't have much force. Right. Um, well, it gets down to any particular, well, it's a, it's a good question. It gets down to any particular uh, physical process. So there's an efficiency limit for single junction solar cells, right? They can't go. What's a single uh, junction solar cell? Oh, no, it's what most people buy. Uh, so pretty much everything, pretty much every solar panel put on earth uh, is single junction okay. solar cell. That means it's only, it's got a, it's a layer. I'm, I'm a PV expert, so, uh, but it's, it's got, you know, a certain set of layers of semiconductors that are, uh, extract, you know, photons from solar radiation and 
each, because each of these has a defined thickness and has a defined set of properties, it's their best at extracting uh, sunlight within certain wavelengths of light. See a rainbow, a uh, reasonable scene. Colors of the rainbow are different wavelengths of light. So you can make, so it, it's good at extracting a certain, uh, certain bandwidth, if you will, of, of radiation. Uh, you can put a second sandwich structure uh, of layers on top of that one, and it's targeting a, a different uh, bandwidth of light. Oh, okay. it's, you, you can even do non-visible light, right? So, and you can put a third one on top, right? And I don't, I think they've done four layers. I don't know what the, what the wow. record is in terms of different sandwich layers. And so you're trying to extract more and more of the entire spectrum of light. Of course, it gets more expensive to make that at a time. And to date, you know, the, the cheapest thing or what seems acceptable is to only use single junction cells for on earth. Now, both these multi-junction, more than one, uh, sort of sandwich layers are used on satellites and things that go into space because mass is a premium, right? Sending mass into space is a, takes a lot of energy. So in, mm. in terms of the cost of a space flight, you know, spending to get the highest end photovoltaic manuals is well worth it. Uh, and so they're more efficient ones there, uh, in that sense. Um, existed space. The National Renewable Energy Lab has a, a, a chart where we track the efficiencies of different designs of solar panels over time. So it's kind of a nice chart of the last 40, 50 years, maybe that sort of tracks this. Anyway, I think that I would maybe get this wrong. It was just in my lecture. It's in book too. I think something like 33 to 34% is the maximum uh, percentage for a photovoltaic. Fo it's called a sharply Kessier limit. Uh, and for wind turbines, you have a similar thing. It's called the Betts limit. I think it's 59.7%. So of all the power flowing in the wind, you can only extract from a horizontal axis turbine, you can only get 59.7%. And then for heat engines, like power plants, there's something called the Carnot thermodynamic uh, limit for named after Sadie Carnot, one of the pioneers of thermodynamics. So it, it just depends on how hot you get power plant and how cold the environment is. So if you know these two temperatures, you have the ultimate thermodynamic limit on efficiency of a power plant. So hotter power plant means more efficient. So let's, that is to say, we know how to think about efficiencies, different power conversion technologies. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I get the, how many are you using of which one, you know, motors, electric motors, internal combustion engines. And some, there is a group of people looking at this and sort of quantifying the ultimate output of the economy. And we call that useful work in the geeky sense and call it useful energy. Energy is a slightly more complicated term for energy that accounts for the second law of thermodynamics. And if you're geeky, you might want to talk about that, but, uh, but useful work is essentially like mechanical, we call it mechanical drive or muscle work, like things that are physically moving. If, if you cause something to physical move, you've done work. Mm -hmm. uh, making a new material, for example, or making a power plant is physically moving mass and refining iron ore into iron, say, and then structuring it into a, you know, steel beam and a building. I mean, so that is work done to do that, right? That's also work. And then there's work, there's like chemical work to make chemicals and plastics. You're, you've made a plastic and used to just have petroleum or natural gas. And electricity is often considered sort of a pure form of work in a thermodynamic sense. So the point of all is people trying to add up all the work done by the economy, which means you've taken into account efficiency to do step one, efficiency of step three, efficiency of step four, kind of down the line. When you add up all the work 
for several countries that have been done, including the United States, the, this, this quote unquote useful work done in the economy increases at seemingly almost an exact one-to-one ratio with gross domestic product. And so the implication there, it makes you think about it, is gross domestic product actually a proxy for work done by the economy? That the economy is just trying to do more work with maximum power. It's just trying to do more work. And that's just make stuff and operate stuff. And GDP is proxy measure for that. Yeah, it's our, kind of our social metric. So, you know, it's a chicken or the egg. I don't know. Mm. Uh, there's not really a chicken or the egg because they're not dependent on each other. It's more complicated to calculate, but, um, but uh, there's wow. a group of people working on this. And this is probably one of the more insightful things that have come out. I think in a long while. So mm. a guy named Robert Ayers, Bob Ayers, is a professor at NC Hot in, in France, now retired. He, him and his student at the time, Benjamin War, started a lot of this work uh, 20 years ago or so. And there's a group of people in, that I associate with there continue this kind of work. Um, so the implication is you can add up all these efficiencies. They could come up with an aggregate efficiency for the whole economy. Like how efficient is the economy at taking primary energy and converting it to work? And this is a direct analog to, you know, a steam engine, something like mm-hmm. that. And so you're basically saying, okay, what if, what if the economy is just a big engine and it's trying to take in resources, and make more engines and do more work. And so you can track that efficiency and you can see if it's increasing and it looks, you know, there's questions about how high it can get uh, for whatever reason, or if there's limits. Could be social reasons, but there's limits uh, more than purely uh, thermodynamic concerns. But uh, these aggregate efficiencies are something like 10 to 15 percent, no, no, like 50 percent. Mm, that's interesting. So, I'm... so yeah, to your tabloid magazines, are they part of helping it? Because people working here, they, they've got to relax when they go home who are trying to make more efficient devices and they need to relax and watch it. Movies, you know, I definitely like entertainment. I mean, it's just you know, different kind of. Oh so, no, I'm I'm sorry. It's I'm, a good question. I'm firmly in the camp of um, those are, God, not unlike. Well, maybe it's just I'm I'm, I'm the, making fun of myself here. You know, I I seek entertainment as well. So yes, it's but just which which form of entertainment do you see? Exactly, exactly. And I do believe that some things are um, deliberately mani- manipulated to dumb down uh, populations. Not by, you know, a couple of people in white coats who sit at the center of the world controlling everything, but just that that is um, a relationship between consumer and provider that's kind of appeared over the past wee yeah. while. Yeah. I would say that would be a, um, a good counter argument to what I've been discussing. I do bring that up in the book in the sense of public relations. We can shift consumer sentiment, uh, mm-hmm. this kind of thing. Um, you know, does it tend to go in the direction of consuming more things versus not? Uh, well, it depends who's paying my, for my, the PR. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or just anything, right? Yeah. So, yeah. If, if you know, company A is paying for the PR, if they want consumption yeah. of more things that company A makes. So is every company roughly doing that? Uh, I would say probably yes. Yeah. So, uh, so it's, that could be, probably still be in support of the, you know, the super organism concept. So, you know, Nate, Nate Hagen's guy, Nathan, or Nate Hagen's has talked about this, you know, as well. And before I wrote the book and in some sense, he's a little bit more on the side of what you're talking about is like, how do we tap into the social or emotional 
uh, sort of cognitive mental processes of humans to say, stop just doing this thing that you're not thinking about mm. and just doing more. You're not thinking about it. Uh, we don't have to do physically more and you can mm. still be happy, right? So this whole little bit of, yeah, that kind of thing. It's like, look, you know, more stuff doesn't mean you're more happy. So yeah. uh, can enough people be convinced of this well, but to, they've, they've, to thwart the trends? The, you know, they've studied it. I mean, there was that, there was that research paper that came out that proved that um, up to $80,000 as your salary increases annually, um, it does affect your quality of life and your happiness. But then after $80,000, it just plateaus. There is no difference between $80,000 and $500,000 annual salary. does not affect your happiness. So Right. I'm, aw I'm aware of these things, not an expert in studying them. So yeah, I, that's about as far as I go is like, these are the kind of bases for saying, yeah, what's the point of, what's the point of more? You know? to, 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 to get to a bit of a, a philosophical point on it, I think the, the thing is that... Um, we're mythical creatures in that we use myths in a way to, to communicate with one another and to learn. And essentially, if you look through human history, that we, we need myths in order to grow. We need myths to, to, to have something to grow towards. And I don't think that people will be convinced of the, the data, which is such a funny sentence, <laughs> um, until they have a new myth to believe in. I'm, I think I'm kind of with you on that. Um, I have definitely thought about this as well, writing the book and afterwards and they say, oh, let's just say I've got this more alternate way of modeling the economy and I'm making my little model and, you know, I've got somebody I've hired now and it's taking me, you know, months to try to tell her how, here's how economic accounting works and here's how the model works. And she's got a PhD, right? So, you know, do people have time to learn <laughs> another method? I mean, it's a real yeah. question. And that's why the myths and the narratives are pumping. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, it doesn't take time to learn them. You can keep trying one. And then when one catches yeah. on, you're like, okay, now, now we've got it. So there really is this, this sort of difficulty of what do people have to comprehend? Uh, or is, is this comprehending uh, what we've been discussing? Is you know, If it takes an hour, you know, or, you know, an hour is not very long, I guess, when it comes down to it. But the... Um, you know, I don't know if, if somebody's convinced by our conversation here to think differently. Mm. They, they mm. might be. Uh, but again, I'm just giving stories and summaries of literature and things I read. I'm not mm. giving mathematics. You know, most people aren't going to get into the mathematics. So I'm agreeing with you that I'm essentially, you know, because I'm an academic, I figure, okay, well, this is what I do. It's what I'm pretty good at. So if I don't sort of get into these kind of mathy arguments and start to reason out the trend, the, the translation between the mathematics of what people are doing and the, the narrative, if you, if you will, of what, how they're saying, interpreting the mathematics. Mm. If I don't get into that, who wins? Yeah. <laughs> I better, I better get into that no. uh, because that's maybe what I'm good at. I'm not as good at some other things. So, uh, oh. this, this is, this is, a, this is a catch. So I think people doing podcasts on, you know, long form podcasts that are hours, uh, going into topics is. Strangely is one of the, uh, you know, I, I think it is one of the ways to, to tackle this issue is you don't, you, you can, you can talk about it for more than five minutes and ask a clarifying question and not have a gotcha thing like, oh, you said that and now I've got a snippet. You don't know. You can say, no, did you, did you really mean this? And uh, somebody can say, well, oh, no. no, I didn't exactly mean that, but I meant was this. And then maybe you talk to it four or five times and then both of you finally understand. Uh, so 
So I think that's definitely value in these kinds of forums. I, I hope so. I mean, um, you know, I get to speak to a lot of experts and I worry about, uh, sometimes I worry about not being an expert, you know, and essentially it being a waste of my guests' time. But then I remember, you know, the audience typically, um, it's it's people like me, it's people that know that there are problems and, and would like to figure out a way to be a part of a solution or at least understand um, what kind of solution some people are working towards or how all of the pieces fit together. And you, you need a novice to ask the clarifying questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to some degree, I think you can, yeah, in some sense, yeah, everybody's that's honestly curious is allowed to ask the questions. Mm. Uh, if you're not being honest about it, then it's not going to work out. Mm. But if you're being honest about it, then if you're an expert or not, I think uh, in any area, I mean, nobody's an expert in everything. So, um, and so it's, yeah, it's definitely valid for you and other people to, to do this. I mean, I listen to all kinds of science and economic podcasts that they certainly talk about things I've never heard of. And mm. so I, that's, that's how I learn <laughs> and pick, pick up things. There's um there's one final question I wanted to ask you on the on the superorganism theory, which is um if humanity is like another organism, which is just its purpose is to continue consuming and continue growing and continue working, and if we can see relationships between work and GDP, um if we can see um, everything that you described about efficiency as well, I mean. Is it possible to restructure the economy if it, it does work exactly like an organism? Because if organisms are just meant to grow continuously, is it even possible to restructure the economy? Yeah, I might stop short of claiming that I know that organisms have, have to grow yeah. in some sense. Like from an evolutionary standpoint, I would say that's maybe a logical conclusion, right? That the, the, the concept is that the organism or the ecosystem itself that is, uh, well, the organisms that survive are those that enable the no overall ecosystem to extract more power from the environment. And in doing so, that organism itself within the ecosystem would survive more readily. Uh, so have to do that. I don't, it's, I think it's one of these questions. I don't know if there's an answer to have mm. to do that. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's just, you know, you get a, you get, you can, that's where you kind of get in the, philosophical realm it's just about increasing entropy production and this is just this is what happens because of statistical processes or things happening over and over you inevitably get life you inevitably get life which in some sense survives and converts energy from the environment into i mean we came from the environment and life is sort of this other thing and then there's a boundary and then there's the environment it used to just be the environment and so life is this structured or thing in, inside the environment but in terms of the economy, you know, I would say, yes, we, well, yes and no question. Yes, we have to act like an organism because the economy is a physical entity. It's composed of, I guess, generically, at least, of, you know, people and machines and the, the word energy or the concept of energy we use is humans consume energy as food and these machines consume energy. So if we. If we are going to use machines for human means, then this physical, these physical set of processes has to occur. That's the laws of physics. These are going to occur. If we ignore these and thinking about the economy, if we ignore physical principles, then we're just going to get a incomplete view of the economy. We're going to think 
like the class pull, I kind of just think that it's just whenever you think in your head, what's the price that this should be? Well, it's whatever I'm willing to pay for. No, no, there's actually a cost that's a, a lot more objective. It has to do with the flow of energy and materials that go into baking something. It's a much more objective way to think about cost. It's not the only thing that affects cost or price, but it's, it's at least a, a basis that we have to consider. But then maybe the answer is no, uh, to your question as well, in the sense of, you know, we have to keep operating in a way where we're trying to make more stuff. Well, in total or in aggregate or more stuff per person, certainly in the Western world, we've got a lot of stuff. Uh, um, and so I, I appreciate, you know, a lot of people will argue with like, well, you're talking about reducing greenhouse gas emissions, regarding renewables or doing whatever you're doing. And that's fine for the Western world, coming up developing countries. Um, and no, I think sorry, a lot of I'm these, sorry, are, a lot of these, I think are disingenuous. It's of course because, it's disingenuous. What developing country <laughs> is so wonderfully benefiting from our industrialization? Oh yeah, please right, go right. ahead. Yeah, but then, but, the, but in the sense of saying, well, we don't have to decrease our consumption. We just have to help these other countries increase their consumption. Well, what? that's not the only option, right? That's not, they, they, you know, we could, we could decrease oh. and they could increase. We could, you know, there's other kinds of forms of. Of potential cooperation there. Now, why why is cooperation so hard? It could go back to the beginning that uh, everybody's for the most part using models that are just not accurate to uh, describing how the economy works as a superorganism. They're thinking um, it doesn't matter how much energy costs the overall system that you can change at any rate you want to in the economy. And the economy will still grow, and, but they just don't realize they're ignoring all the feedbacks and details that actually dictate whether the statement's true or false. Um, yeah, and we won't get into maybe that, um, yeah, the idea of, you know, developing countries, leapfrogging developed countries, because they're going to go straight to electric cars, renewables, but, you know, they don't make these things. They don't have the internal capabilities, yeah. education yeah. systems and hospitals. Yeah. So, you know, are you going to help them do yeah. all that? And traditionally yeah. the answer is no, yeah. developed countries are not. So that's more your, yeah. your, <laughs> your yeah. area there, but maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So but... I, so I, I don't focus on that much myself, but I can appreciate the different, uh, the, I don't yeah, the difficulty. <laughs> I just think it, it's such, um, what's the word, uh, logical fallacy. Um, just looking, looking at the state of develop, looking at the state of developing nations when we know how much money in the world and we know how many resources they are and we know how unequally distributed things are and then saying, oh, but if we stop industrialization, it's not fair to those that haven't had their chance. They haven't had their chance because they weren't given their chance. <laughs> it's exactly as you say, there's no uh, history of collaboration, which means they're going to get it in whatever time. Um, and if you look at how many units of energy are consumed per head. I mean, the UK, the US, the Western world, Europe, what we consume per person compared to China and India. And yes, these countries that are developing, but per head is astonishing. We consume mm -hmm. so much. Yeah. So let me say one more thing here on what you just said is that in the, in the very generic field of what we call nonlinear dynamics, which just, you know, simulating how things change over time, but you know, not linear. Um, it, when people were studying, you know, chaos theory in, in the eighties, it was kind of big 
the big thing and in the, in the news a lot. Uh, the point from that is that initial conditions matter. Where you start heavily dictates where you end up in the long run. Mm-hmm. And most economic modeling is based upon quote-unquote equilibrium concepts, which is to say enough time has passed that the system comes to an equilibrium between supply and demand. But in some sense, it throws away the idea of initial conditions. It's like you get to start over. You get to some equilibrium and say, oh, I want the economy to be the same. Well, I'll just study the equilibrium I get to after some time, amount of time that I haven't specified. You're like, is it 100 years? Is it 10 years? Whatever. It sort of ignores the idea of initial conditions and the idea that the economy is never in equilibrium. Right. So, so the fact that, um, you know, that quote-unquote industrial countries in UK and US or Western Europe you know, started developing is the initial condition that those, that's where it started for you know, whatever reasons. Mm. That's, this is, you know, that's a whole other podcast on a, you know, developing a few months or, you know, all this kind of thing. Um, and it doesn't mean that it's equally as easy for whatever, you know, let's just say African countries to follow the same path or a, or a, a more expedient productive path because they went first and we already exist. And they have to compete against us. I don't know if, if you're going to compete directly on making technologies and selling. We, we already have this whole set of infrastructure, so it's, it's not the same. So there is no equilibrium again, where you get to start over, uh, and everybody's at ground zero and then, you know, push go on the button and everybody start again. So you develop <laughs> technologies. Uh, I, we're I not would, there. And, yeah. I would disagree with you though. Uh, not on the, okay. not on everything that you just said. I agree with absolutely everything that you just said, except for the fact that um, other countries, that, that is us that has the infrastructure, is thus us that have the know-how. I mean, I interviewed Simon Michel, and he was saying, uh, actually, you know, Europe and the US, you know, we're post-industrial nations. And so if we get to a stage geopolitically where China essentially cuts us off um, from access to its industrial supply chain, and we have to start mining again in Europe and we have to start building factories that we've long since outsourced. He was like, it's going to be an absolute disaster. We don't know how to do that stuff anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can. Yeah, yeah. No, I can hear you on that one. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I guess that conversation starting to happen. Mm. Um, at least in the U.S. here, there's, a, you know, well, Trump was America first and yeah. Biden's all about, you know, American jobs. This kind of thing, too. And to some degree, it's about that. And COVID made. People mm. realize it more than they otherwise would have. Yeah. So yeah, we went through a kind of a, uh, not the, the, the most knowledgeable about economic history, but yeah, from a colonial type arrangement to maybe more global mm. trade, and then the global trade has shifted. You know, some fundamental uh, processes. Yeah, a lot to China. Um, they're probably not making this mistake. <laughs> Uh, but if the U.S. is focused on, hey, let's just make the most profits and most profits are, you know, I'm an international company. I mean, uh, yeah. that does the country matter anymore if you get international companies are like, well, the United States or Europe, okay, whatever. I'm, I'm just this company and I'm everywhere. Yeah. I'm, I'm not a country. Yeah. So sure. Yeah. I'm fine with the manufacturing being wherever. Yeah. Um, Designed yeah. in California, made in China. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I have that in the book too. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a good example. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, Carrie, I've definitely taken up enough of your time today. Thank you so much for speaking with me. 
Um, is there someone you would like to platform much in the same way that Steve platformed you? You know, if he's up for it, Nate Hagens, uh, Nathan Hagens. Um, there's also, I would say, Paul Brockway in Leeds University and Tiago Domingos in Portugal, IST, uh, Institute of Technology. So these are these two other folks working on sort of this exergy and useful work kind of analysis and doing a, a good job with it. And, and Nate is a good person that thinks a lot along the lines of what you're thinking, a blend of what I'm thinking and a blend of what you're thinking. Could you, could you put us in an email together? Please? Yeah. That's awesome because so many people, he, you were like the fourth person to say Nate Hagens, Nate Hagens, Nate Hagens. And I've just been like biding my time, seeing, seeing if there's going to be like a, a, a good connection. So I would be extremely grateful if you could put me in an email with him. Thank you okay. so much. This is absolutely fascinating. You are a real expert in your field. And I mean, listen, all the thermodynamics stuff that went completely over my head. Um, but you've certainly given me a whole new framework to, to think about economics. So I'll, truly, I thank you. Okay. No, thank you. I enjoyed the conversation. Well. So, oh, cool. I hope so. That's, I'm really pleased to hear that. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Cheers. All right. all right. Hi, everyone. Me again. You can find Carrie's book, The Economic Superorganism, at any major bookstore. I would highly recommend you get your hands on a copy and read it cover to cover. You can also subscribe to this podcast over at platformenterprise.com, where if you have the means, you can choose a paid subscription. That kind of support enables me to spend time going out and tracking down these fantastic experts, asking them for an hour of their time to explain some of the most important concepts that are currently being studied in the world today. Thank you all for tuning in and for your continued support. And I will see you next week.